Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. I say this nonchalantly, but uh, as Christians, we find ourselves living in a world and a culture that that uh, often perceives our light as darkness, and it's a culture that is increasingly hostile toward believers, what we believe, and uh, we should ask the question, how do we live in a culture uh, where our beliefs are suppressed or maybe even silenced? How do we live in a culture like that? How do we engage that sort of culture? That's kind of what we want to talk about this morning from the book of Daniel in chapter 3. We're going to revisit our theme for 2022. And what's our theme, guys? Trust more and fear less. Trust more, fear less. That's an appropriate, relevant theme for the days that we're living in, interesting times that we're in. And I have to admit... That um, Pastor Erwin Lutzer greatly influenced this message today uh, because uh, last month at the Berean Fellowship Conference, he was our guest speaker and he took us to Daniel chapter 3. And as soon as he finished that session, we were putting our coats on. I remember I turned to my wife and I said, we're going to be back in Daniel 3 very soon, back at Shadron Berean, because uh, Daniel 3 fits so well with our emphasis of trusting more and fearing less, because Daniel and his friends proved to be great role models for how to trust God in troubling times. Trusting God in troubling times. Many of you guys are familiar with the book of Daniel. I'm sure we just went through the book of Daniel last year uh, in Larry's Sunday school class. Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace. These all, don't, don't these take you back? Like a lot of you guys, I hope it does anyway. I hope this, those, those titles take you back to, you know, bedtime stories or Sunday school when you're a kid. Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace. And uh, these, are, these are story time classics for us. But many of you guys also had no idea that when you grew up, your culture would shift so drastically that you would find yourself hypothetically in the lion's den in, in, your, in your culture in America, in the United States of America. That's how, it's not the same America you grew up with, is it, that we're living in right now. It has fundamentally changed, and so we find ourselves, just like Daniel and his friends, I think in, as moral and spiritual exiles in our own Babylon. Right, the opposition is coming, and we've got to learn from these guys. Uh, and, and, and before we turn to Daniel 3, before we start reading it, I want to remind us of the context. The northern ten tribes of Israel have been taken captive. Uh, they've been exiled. You could say they've been ripped out of their homeland in Israel, and they've been taken uh, east and northeast. Israel, the northern half, has been uh, taken to Assyria, and the southern half, Judah, has been exiled a little bit after them to um, Babylon, about 350 miles east of the Promised Land. And Israel as a nation, right, both 
even though it was divided back in this day, Israel as a nation, as a whole, is no longer the theocratical kingdom of God on earth, which they have been since Mount Sinai. They've had, they've, God has been governing through them in a sense. And so now uh, that is on pause, basically. God has allowed Israel as a nation to uh, be exiled for her sin, for her immorality, for her um, idolatry, her worship of false gods. And uh, he's allowed them now to be exiled to these foreign nations and be, be at their power, basically under their power, at, at the mercy of these foreign Gentile kingdoms. And that's going to bring a lot of conflict that you see in the book of Daniel, like faith conflict, because Gentiles don't believe what Jews believe, and so they find themselves under pressure culturally to compromise their beliefs, what they believe. And uh, that's why God raises up Daniel through divine revelations given to Daniel. God helps the Israelites and the whole world know that even though God's theocratic earthly kingdom is, on, is paused, it's on pause, God still reigns. He still reigns through his universal kingdom. So there's an earthly kingdom, there's a universal kingdom. You've got to, I think you've got to understand these two different types of kingdoms. Sometimes the earthly kingdom is called the mediatorial kingdom. Um, but you've got to understand this if you're going to understand your Bible. God has a universal kingdom in heaven, reigns supreme over all nations for all time from Genesis to Revelation. But then he also entrusted a theocratic kingdom to Adam, the first man, and it was lost due to sin. And it kind of comes back. You get a glimpse of it again under Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's lost. And the Shekinah glory leaves. And they're going into exile. And in the Gospels, what do you see? Jesus offering the kingdom again to them. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's being offered. But what do they do? They commit the unpardonable sin of saying that Jesus is basically Satan. And they, they reject Jesus Christ. And at that time, from that moment, he turns and he starts to speak in parables. And the nations reject it. And then what do you see in the book of Revelation? You see the kingdom of God reoffered, right? The gospel of the kingdom is preached again. Why? Because that kingdom of Christ is about to break into the world. Okay? And uh, he's going to destroy the last and final Gentile power of, of the Antichrist. Okay? And uh, so you got two different kingdoms here that we're talking about that if you want to understand your Bible and the flow of it, you got to get those two kingdom concepts down. And I would recommend a book by, for serious Bible students called Alva J. Mc, called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. Alva J. McLean, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Uh, he had that kingdom thing down. Um, Daniel 4.25-26, through 26, though, says, Heaven rules over all human kingdoms. It's heaven that rules. And there's two key terms in the book of Daniel. Uh, one used for God is, is the Most High God. Thir used 13 times in the book of Daniel. Right? Babylon's, Babylon's God. It's God's. But the God of Israel is the one true God. He's the Most High God. He's supreme. And then the terms king and kingdom or kingdoms, uh, this, <laughs> that, those, those terms uh, are used 226 times. Don't ask me how long it took to count that. But um, around 200, over 200 times those terms or related terms are used. And so it's a book about kings, and it's a book about kingdoms. And Daniel helps us understand, helps us understand God's kingdom and the, the predicted prophecy related to it. 
along with the Old Testament prophets, Daniel presents the hope that when Jesus Christ comes the second time, the Shekinah glory that, that was, used to be in the temple, right? God's physical Shekinah glory in the Old Testament temple, in David's day, Solomon, no, Solomon's day, uh, that, that glory is one day going to return. That's what Ezekiel prophesied. He sees it happening in the future when Christ returns. Uh, and Christ is going to establish his kingdom. He's going to crush all the Gentile kingdoms, but not before he is cut off and has nothing at his first coming. He comes the first time. He's rejected. Daniel 9.27 says he's cut off. The prince has nothing. And it's not until the second coming that he comes and establishes his kingdom. But for now, guys, the despairing Jew living in Babylon and the proud Gentile world needs to understand that the Most High God is still in control of everything that's happening, especially the Jew. He needs to know that. Um, Daniel 1, chapter 1, there's four, the, we're introduced to the four young Jewish men, Dan, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these guys have been sort of selected out of the cream of the crop of Israel. These are handsome young men, good-looking young men, with wisdom and knowledge. And King Nebuchadnezzar tries to change their identity, basically. Uh, he, they teach these, these four young men who have been appointed to the king's court. Uh, to, they, they've, they've been taught Babylonian literature. They've been taught the Babylonian language, and they, they give them new names, new names that no longer reflect the God of Israel, but reflect the pagan gods, the idols of Babylon. So they're actually renamed after Babylon's gods. However, despite the attempts to re-educate these young men, they make up their minds, it says. Daniel makes up his mind that he's going to walk with God no matter what. Some of you guys are familiar with the uh, King James Version. Uh, the, the, he purposed in his heart. He purposed in his heart that he was going to walk with God and he wasn't going to compromise no matter what. And that's what you've got to do when you're living in a spiritual Babylon. In a, in, a, in a hypothetical Babylon, like our culture, you have to decide to walk with God no matter what. Who cares if it's not cool? Who cares what people say? Who cares what they're going to do to you? You're going to walk with God. I'm not going to compromise. That's what it's like when the church is in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He sees in his dream a giant statue made up of four different parts. And Daniel reveals that... Um, these four parts represent four kingdoms, and the, the head of gold is the Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel also reveals the future. Uh, God allows him to. He's got the next part of that statue is the Medo-Persia, uh, and the, the next part is Greece, and then, then the, the lower part is uh, the legs are, are Rome, and then even lower the feet are a revived Roman Empire. And so basically, Daniel's God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel this dream about all these kingdoms that were going to come before they even happened. Isn't that amazing? Daniel even predicts the day that the Messiah is going to enter Jerusalem. The very day. So they should have known their king was coming, right? But they rejected him. He's cut off and he has nothing. Anyway, uh, this, there's this... There's, there's Babylon, there's Persia, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the revived Roman Empire that awaits the future, which is referring to uh, the Great Tribulation period that where Satan, through the Antichrist, actually heads up the final 
Gentile world power. And there's a rock in that, in that dream that falls from heaven. Who do you think the rock is? Christ, yep. Jesus, he falls from heaven to end Gentile dominance and establish God's kingdom. And uh, until, until Christ comes, we're still living in the times of the Gentiles. But uh, anyway, for his interpretation, right, Nebuchadnezzar's blown away, and Daniel and his friends are promoted even more. Okay, and, and the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they don't like that. But that's where we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the rulers of the provinces to come to, to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces, right? all the elites, this oligarchy, uh, they, they were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, uh, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and they worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And so first thing we see here um, is the decree in your outline, if you're taking notes, the decree. Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive statue that is no doubt inspired by the dream in the previous chapter where uh, he, he, he's the head of gold on that statue. Okay, but what Nebuchadnezzar is saying by building a statue completely of gold is that there ain't no kingdoms coming after me. I'm, my kingdom's going to last forever. Because remember, it was made up of different kingdoms that were coming after him. He built it of solid gold. He's disregarding the prophecy. Okay, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want these other kingdoms to come after his. And so he's very proud in building this statue. And many also suggest that at this time there was an attempted coup to overthrow King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's testing people's allegiances to him. Um, the statue is 90 feet high. It's around nine stories tall. That's just you know, a little bit shorter than the high-rise over here uh, at the college. If you want some perspective of how tall this thing was. And uh, it reminds me of various statues that are going up in 21 cities all around the world, major cities. Have you seen this thing? Okay, look up the giant company, the giant company. There's a statue that they're putting up in 21 cities that moves. It moves, and it has LED skin, so you can make that statue look like anybody you want it to. Kind of creepy, huh? Guess how tall it is? Ten stories. Sound familiar? Yeah. Isn't this crazy? Um, 
this is the idea, if you get on their website, it's to highlight the giants in their communities, right? Uh, so this is basically nothing less than humanism, right? Humanism. This is glorification and deification of man. That's what it's like to live in the times of the Gentiles. Okay, we all live in the day of man where man has his day. During the tribulation period, God bears his holy harm and he knocks man down. He humiliates him. Okay, but for now, this is what it's like. We're living in the day of man. Man thinks he's his own God. Man thinks he's going to write his own rules. He wants to worship himself. And it's not hard, is it, to imagine some tyrants or oligarchs right, uh, to use this statue just like the Antichrist, like the future Antichrist. He's going to set up his image. And, and I wonder if he's going to use something like this. And the reason we don't have to imagine uh, tyrants using something like this is because there's all sorts of dictators throughout history, Mao, Lenin, they've all put up their giant statues. That's Mao. He put up a giant gold statue of himself. It's just unbelievable. There's nothing new under the sun here. Okay? Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to weld all of the nations within his kingdom under one totalitarian government with one world religion. That's what he wants. Now, in the future, Antichrist, Satan through him, is going to do the same thing. Revelation 13 says he's going to set up his image, and you won't be able to buy or sell or trade without worshiping him, having his mark. Isn't that interesting? Okay, There's going to be martyrdom or sanctions for those who don't. Sound familiar? Kind of like truckers? Can't access their bank accounts, can't buy, trade, or sell. Maybe kind of like Russia, the sanctions. Well, someday they're going to turn on Christians. Unless you worship Antichrist, believers, I would say. Unless you worship Antichrist, you're going to face sanctions. You might even face martyrdom. But this is what it's like, again, guys, for believers in the world until Christ comes to establish His kingdom. And this is why we pray, our Lord come, Maranatha, our Lord come, we pray, thy kingdom come. Why? Because we're tired of living in the times of the Gentiles. We're tired of it. We, we want the, the Lord and his kingdom to come. And that's why we pray those two things, because the Lord and the kingdom, they come at the same time to end the times of the Gentiles. So as long as we're, we're in this time, trust is going to be the chief characteristic of God's people in this age. Because we're living in such a crazy and interesting time, I say interesting, uh, crazy times where evil people tend to rule, sinful man reigns, um, trust is going to become our chief characteristic. Trust is the one condition for salvation, isn't it? God has made trust the one condition for salvation. We don't trust what we do, we trust what Jesus did for us. And then on top of that, Trust also is the way we, we grow in, in, our, in our faith. Trust is something required to live in a time when, when, when it's just troubling for us. You know, in the book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, Mr. McLean, Alva J. McLean said, we are called to have an unlimited willingness to trust him in all things. Trust him at all times. Okay, between the period, the time period of Acts chapter 2 and Christ's return, the age of the church is in a time of humiliation. Listen to the way that the church age is described. It's, we face humiliation. We're not reigning, guys. We face humiliation, testing, trouble, persecution, suffering, and groaning. 
We're called to patient endurance, refining and perfecting, unceasing labor, agonizing conflict, unrelenting struggle toward a goal which lies beyond the age and world. We walk by faith. We live in hope. We endure hardship as good soldiers, and we look to things which are not seen. The career of the church, he says, stands in contrast to the prophetic picture of a golden age which occurs when the kingdom of God is on earth. See, to believe that the kingdom is on earth today, that we're the kingdom and we're advancing the kingdom, guys, that's delusional. It does not match the prophetic picture, the career of the church and the prophetic picture. At the dedication ceremony, though, of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, he decrees that everyone who doesn't bow down and doesn't worship is going to be thrown in the furnace of blazing fire. And furnaces or kilns like this, they were used for manufacturing bricks, but the kings would also use them uh, for judgments. And the temperatures could reach 1,000 degrees, centigrade, 1,000 degrees in these kilns. That's pretty terrifying, isn't it? That's like the temperature of lava, I think. Uh, the Jews forbidden to be involved in, in, in idol worship are now, they're in a pinch. What are they going to do? Are they going to bow down or are they not? But let's make this a little more relevant. What are you going to do if you're there? Are you going to bow down or are you not? Right? Everybody else is doing it. Uh, the music's loud and it's bumping, you know, and just, just picture it. What are you going to do? Imagine the pressure that they were under. Let's continue on in verse 8. For this reason at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed. Did you catch that? There are certain Jews you appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. Namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So we see the charges here now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't don't bow down. These these guys are willing to stand alone. And the Chaldeans, some of the other... other, you know, high, high men, men that are higher up, uh, they, they're no doubt jealous. They're jealous of these guys. They're jealous of the promotion that these Jews have over them, and so they take advantage of the opportunity to get rid of them. They want to get rid of them anyway, and I'm sure they're, they're tired of these principled men. Um, it's convicting them. And one of the lessons we can learn from this is that God's will is often very mysterious to us. Wouldn't you agree? It's often very mysterious to us. We tend to think that if we're in the will of God, everything's going to be hunky-dory. You know, it's just going to be smooth sailing in life. And, you know, smooth sailing is the sign of someone who's blessed by God. What do you think the Christian martyr thinks of that? You know? It's not always the case, is it? The Christian doesn't always face smooth sailing. Actually, we would argue that most of the heroes in the Bible... They went through what? Incredible trials and suffering. Read Hebrews chapter 11. They went through incredible trials and suffering. That's the reason that they're heroes is because they trusted God in it all. It gives us another good principle. When you're in Babylon, 
You want to live for God in troubling times? You've got to trust God at all times. You've got to trust God at all times. No matter what the charges are. You live for God. You've got to trust Him. You have to trust that He's in control of the situation. You know, they say, you might be the only Bible someone ever reads. You ever heard that? And if you live it out, right, that should obviously... Sometimes, I, I hope it would be kind of contagious. You know, people would see something different in you and they want it. But a lot of times, what happens is people see something different in you and they want to get rid of you. They, they, they don't like it. They work to get rid of you. Andy Woods calls this the parable of the whale. I like it. When a whale surfaces and shows themselves, right, when believers surface and they show themselves, it's a keen opportunity not only to take pictures of the whale, but what? To jab a spear into them, Right? I like that illustration. I mean, if God's working in your life and you stand out, uh, you know, by the way that you stand for biblical truth, you, you, you're a principled man according to the word of God, you're going to be a threat to people. They're going to want to cancel you and because you expose their lack of God in their life. You're convicting them. You become a standard raised up against them. Nebuchadnezzar has raised his standard, right? But God, at the same time, is raising his standard against everyone else, and that is the believers who refuse to bow, the believers who refuse to bow the knee to an immoral and idolatrous culture. This is why, you know, if you're the standard against this world, that's why the Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted. Not all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have smooth sailing through life. That's why the Bible says, don't think it's strange when fiery trials come upon you. 1 Peter 4.12. But let's, let's continue on uh, with the interrogation in verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, he gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods, and you don't worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, uh, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you don't, you'll immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you from my hands? Whoa. He's about to be humbled. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But get this, but even if he does not, don't you like that? Even if he doesn't, he's able, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Isn't that good? They say every man has his price, not these guys. These guys can't be bought. Upon interrogation before the raging king, these three men respectfully respond, we're not going to worship, we're not going to bow down. That's the first commandment. We'll worship God alone. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this, I think. He knows what their response is going to be, and that's why they say, we don't need to answer you about this matter. It's like saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you know us. You know we're not going to bow down. You know our faith 
Our Jewish faith prohibits the worship of anyone but the one true God. And so I think their comment speaks of another principle that we should apply when we're in Babylon. Life in Babylon calls for a consistent spiritual walk. He knows. I think, I think this refusal to compromise their beliefs and behaviors, that, that is a good lesson for us here. That's, this, their comment speaks of a consistent testimony in the past. Nebuchadnezzar looks at these guys. He's like, and, and he should know they're not going to compromise. And there's another lesson. When is it okay to disobey government? When's it okay to disobey government? Government is a divine institution that God established, and He established it for good. He established it right after Noah's flood to keep the sin nature in check. Uh, you know, if people won't listen to God's Spirit or His Word or conscience, the only threat that's left is punishment, basically. You know, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, they say. So <laughs> it's the, the threat of action against them is actually... One of the things that keeps people from sinning. I mean, that's how God uh, lowered the murder rate. The, the, before Noah's flood, it was very murderous. That was one of the reasons why God flooded the world. After it, he institutes capital punishment as a way to restrain sin. But what about when government tries to get you to do something that would cause you to disobey God? Well, at that point, the Bible says we must obey God rather than men. We obey God rather than men. But notice we do it respectfully like, like these three. You know, if we're not respectful, we're really just not helpful. So even when you disobey, you're still respectful when you do it. And these men, and that's hard to do, <laughs> but you know, these men, they were respectful, they were brave, they were courageous in their faith decision, but how, how were they so courageous? Well, look at verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He's able See, they understood their all-powerful God. They understand God was sovereign. They understood He was in control. If, if there was any question in their minds, it was never about God's power. It was about His will. They said, right, even if He doesn't, let it be known we're not going to worship. So we don't, we don't question God's power at any time. But we leave, leave the situation in God's hands. We say, you know, His will be done. Whatever He decides. Uh, we got to fear God. More than the fire. That's, that's the principle that they applied that day. They feared God more than the fire. They understood God is all-powerful. Earthly kings are not. There's a most high God that they're going to answer to. There's a higher king that they're going to answer to than Nebuchadnezzar. And Jesus said, hey, don't fear those who can harm the body, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And who's that? That's Jesus himself. He's going to be the judge of man. He's going to judge every man. And let's remember that while the whole world may seem like it's falling apart in our day, from God's perspective, I think it's falling into place. Things are falling into place. You see the globalism going on, you see the push towards globalism, and uh, it's really just falling into place. You see things lining up in the Middle East. It's, it's not a good time to, to be without Christ, I'll tell you that. Um, it's a good time to stay on your toes and to walk with God so that we're not ashamed when He returns to come and get us. But, you know, we always have that hope. We have that hope that even when it looks like the world's falling apart, it's actually falling into place. And so we learn, as Christians, to focus on the promises and not on the problems. Focus on the promises, not on the problems. Those who have Christ, they have everything they need. Amen? Someone be a Baptist this morning. 
No one can separate you from Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes. All right, I needed that. He'll vindicate you. You live for him, you suffer, he's going to vindicate you. And one day he's going to glorify you. And Revelation 2.26 says, one day you're going to reign with him over the nations. You will reign with him over the nations. You don't have to win in this life to win in the next, to win in the end. It's, it's, it's like Andy Woods says, right now is training time for reigning time. It's training time for reigning time. And our sufferings become a badge of honor. It's a badge of honor to suffer for Christ. Let's look at their vindication because their vindication comes immediately. Sometimes we have to wait until Christ comes to get us, but here it's immediately. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered. This is verse 19. He was, it was altered towards the three men, and he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And to bed we go. Just kidding. Um, to bed we go with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know. It's a Bible story thing. It's weird. Um, anyway, in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire, then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes. And they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And for this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, but these three men fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. And so apparently there's a, there's a hole, a door in the top, you can get into, and there's a door in the side where Nebuchadnezzar can view what's going on. And uh, verse 24 continues, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste. And he said to his high officials, Was it not three men that we cast into the midst of the fire? But they replied to the, to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men loosed. They're not bound anymore. They're loosed, and they're walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And so they came out of the midst of the fire, and, and uh, all the king's high officials, satraps, prefects, everyone around saw, saw what happened. They saw these men that, that the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor, was, nor were their their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. Did you catch that? He delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Now therefore, I make a decree that any people, here's a new decree, any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of, Bab of Babylon. So pretty sweet, isn't it? Uh, these three are tied up. They're thrown in as they're thrown in. Right? The executioners die. The furnace is so hot. But these three, they're not even harmed. They can breathe just fine in the fire. They're unbound, and there's an angelic deliverer with them. And uh, 
Most people think, and I myself included, think this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. This is Christ himself before he's incarnated. And these Old Testament appearances are what we would call a theophany. Okay, uh, But uh, it's a good principle to understand here that Jesus is with you in the fiery trials of life. Jesus is with you in the fiery trials of life. He's with you in that he's been through what you're going through, and even more so, he's been through worse trials than us, but he's also with us in that he's, he lives in us by his Spirit. Um, he is fully aware of what's going on. I don't know what fiery trials going on in your life today, but he's fully aware of it, and he stands in solidarity with you. He takes it personally. Acts 9.4 shows us. So he stands in the fire with his people, and there's plenty of examples of that today. Think of Christians in the Middle East, Christians in Ukraine, uh, especially if the Russian Orthodox Church takes over. Um, true Christianity's out, only the Orthodox Church, a false church, the state church is in. Uh, we can think of Christian small business owners like Jack Phillips, does that ring a bell, that name, a Colorado baker, uh, back in 2012, refuses to make a cake for a same-sex couple. In 2017, someone came to him to try to get him to make a transgender, a gender transition cake. He refused to do that, too. Obviously, paid fines both times. Um, there's legislature out there today that are, it's unimaginable. There's the Bill C-4 in Canada, which is just like the Equality Act here in America. That's being presented. There's the Fairness Ordinance in Lincoln, Nebraska, our very own state. Um, thankfully, it sounds like they got enough signatures to shut that thing down for a while. But these are all bills and legislature that fine residents for counseling people in biblical terms. Right? Basically, you can't try to talk anyone out of their transition or out of their preferred gender, whatever it is. Even if it's just a private conversation, you're going to jail, you're paying fines. This is, this is life in Babylon. The opposition is increasing. And uh, it's at times like this where God calls us to stand. This is what we're here for. We're not called to bow the knee. We're called to, to stand, to be a standard against this wicked and perverse generation as lights who appear in the world. This world can raise its standards, but God is going to raise His people who are going to be the standard against it. And through their courage... Through the courage of God's people who will stand, others are going to come to believe and others are going to be encouraged to stand themselves. Isn't that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He sees their trust in God and he sees what God does and, and he, it makes an impression on him so much so that I think we're going to see him in heaven. We're going to see him in heaven. It's pretty amazing. Courageous faith. This is the last principle. Well, here was my picture for that last comment, but courageous faith is a contagious faith. Courageous faith is a contagious faith. Stay encouraged. Don't bow the knee to our Babylonian culture, church. Live for God. That's what he's called you to, to walk worthy, to be a light. If we want to see people come to Christ and we, and we want to change the world, it ain't going to be by becoming like this world. He's called us out from the world. We're in it, but we're not like it. And so we respectfully refuse to compromise our biblical convictions, and we stand with God, and we trust in Him, no matter 
what happens. Amen? This is a fitting passage, I think, for a young man's baptism this morning in a world that often rejects Christ. uh, Getting baptized is, is, is the exact opposite of rejecting Christ. It's saying, I have accepted Christ. And I have accepted the gospel message that I'm saved by grace through faith, not by works, right? This is not a work unto salvation. It's saying I have been saved. And it's also a way of identifying with God's people. Saying I I believe in Christ, the gospel, and I'm with his church. So just like Daniel and his friends, this is a way of saying I've purposed in my heart to follow Christ. Amen.